If you will open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3, and we're going to go verses 1 through 21. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. The title of the sermon is Entering the Kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Roland Frederick Frederick Stewart, born February 23rd, 1944, also known as Rockin' Rollin' and Rainbow Man, got a picture of him up here for you, um, is a man who was a fixture in American sports culture, best known for wearing rainbow-colored Afro-style wig, and later holding up signs reading John 3.16 at stadium sporting events around the United States um, in the 1970s and 1980s. According to Wikipedia, Stewart became a born-again Christian and was determined to, quote, get the message out via television. His first major appearance was at the 1977 NBA Finals, and by the time of the 1979 MLB All-Star Game, broadcasters actively tried to avoid showing him. (laughs) He appeared behind NFL goalposts, near Olympic medal stands, and even at the Augusta National Golf Club. Uh, At the 1982 Indy 500, he was behind the pits of race winner Gordon Johncock. Stewart would strategically position himself for key shots of plays or athletes. Uh, Stewart's fame led to a Budweiser beer commercial and a Saturday Night Live parody sketch. Imagine that. I'm also told that he was at Princess Diana's wedding and the National, uh, Republican National Convention one year. Uh, as a kid, there was always something comical to me about seeing this guy show up at different sporting events, uh, even on replays. Uh, and even though it still causes me to laugh, I always thought, uh, that guy thinks John 3.16 is pretty important. Uh, as crazy as rock and rollin' was, He's right. Uh, John 3.16 is pretty important. Uh, There are so many truths in the Bible that we can be unfamiliar about and still be saved. But to be ignorant of the truths contained in this section of Scripture means certain and eternal destruction. John 3.16 is pretty important. So our text tonight is John chapter 3, verses one through 21. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who, has de who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Forewarning, if you didn't catch it already... Uh, I've chosen a large section of text here uh, that couldn't be adequately preached even in 10 sermons. But there's a, a central theme here that I didn't want to break up into parts. So know that each of these truths could be mined significantly deeper than we will. Uh, but uh, I want us to understand and believe and see the beauty of these truths this evening nonetheless. So the question is, how can anyone enter the kingdom of God? That's what I believe this whole section is about. So let's dig in. How can anyone enter the kingdom of God? Number one, our first point, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. First, I want us to see that being born again isn't optional or extracurricular to being a Christian. Uh, heaven and hell hang in the balance here. Jesus isn't merely speaking of some extra installation of the Spirit here. In verses 3 and 5, he says that without the new birth, one cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Now, Many people use the phrase born-again Christian to describe a particular class of Christians. What I want us to understand from the get-go this evening is that a non-born-again Christian is an oxymoron. A non-born-again Christian isn't a Christian at all. Second, being born again has nothing to do with one's status, religious activity, or even scriptural knowledge, as good as those things are. Look with me at verse 1. Now, this verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, 
is actually a continuation of chapter 2, starting in verse 23. And this is important to understand the context here. So starting in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, speaking of Jesus, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Then look at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was certainly a real historical person who approached Jesus. But he's also meant to be very representative of mankind as a whole. We see in these verses, just before verse 1, a repetition of the word man. And who Nicodemus is, is very representative of us as mankind. Think about it. In human terms, if we were forced to choose someone to represent us morally before Jesus, this is the guy we'd probably all choose. I know that the word Pharisee is kind of a stench to us in modern day. It's become almost synonymous with the word hypocrite, right? But in Jesus's day, these were the guys that were at the top of the religious pyramid. They had it all together. They, they knew the scriptures. They were the conservative ones in Jesus' day who interpreted the scriptures strictly and literally. They were the good people. Even more, we know from Nicodemus' name, which is a Greek name, that he was most likely very knowledgeable. Uh, to be Jewish and yet have a Greek name meant that he had received a considerable amount of Greek education. So he's good, and he's smart. Further, verse 1 tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. So he's influential. Good, smart, influential. The trifecta. Again, if we were forced to pick someone to represent us before God, this is probably who we'd pick. He seems to be doing it all right. And yet... Jesus responds to him dramatically. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand that his religion, his education, and his cultural status will not cause him to see the kingdom of God. I'm sure Nicodemus had done a lot of praiseworthy, even moral things throughout his life. I'm sure he followed the law of Moses. He probably served at soup kitchens, helped little old ladies across the street, even memorized large sections of the Old Testament. Jesus says, not good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born again. So, what does it mean to be born again? Let's first think about what it means to be born. 
It means to become alive, having life and breath, coming out of one world and into a new one. Being born isn't just a minor thing, is it? It's intense. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this. Nicodemus, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be radically transformed. So much so that it'll be like being reborn, becoming a new person altogether. And look at what Nicodemus says, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, this is a reasonable response. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't think this is an ignorant or even a sarcastic response that he gives here. I think what he's saying is, Jesus, I'm an old man. How can I become a new man at this stage of life? To be born again means to have a completely new life. The fancy theological word for this is regeneration. Another clue to what being born again is, is that Jesus contrasts being born again with flesh. In verse 6, and this is important, flesh means being born, being born physically or naturally. In other words, having a human nature. And as we learn in Genesis and Romans 5, everyone who is in Adam has a human nature, therefore a sin nature. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 says this. It says, Now the works of the flesh, there's that word, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's a pretty good list, isn't it? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see that? To be born again, or of the Spirit, is the opposite of those things. The opposite of being born in the flesh. Your sin nature is regenerated. It's transformed. You're born again. But this time, it's not physical, it's spiritual. Now, I want also to look at verse 5. So Jesus responds. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Some believe that what Jesus is saying here is you've got to be born physically first of water, referencing the amniotic fluid in a mother's womb, and... You've got to be born spiritually. While that's true, you do have to be both of those things to enter the kingdom of God, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here exactly. I think what Jesus is saying is even more significant than that. Now, I want us to take a look at Ezekiel chapter 36 and follow along, starting in verse 23. Ezekiel 36, we're going to read verses 23 through 28. It says, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, 
which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Here in this passage in Ezekiel 36, we have the pairing of water and spirit. They go together, and they work in tandem. The sprinkling of water is for cleansing, and it's the Lord who does this cleansing. Then he puts his spirit within the heart. That's what Jesus is saying about the new birth in John chapter 3. Even more, rebirth is something that's external to us and not able to be controlled. Another way of saying this is we're actually passive participants in the rebirth. Right after the passage that we just read in Ezekiel 36 is, you guessed it, Ezekiel 37. (laughs) Famous Valley of Dry Bones passage that Aaron read for us earlier. God calls Ezekiel to go and speak the word of the Lord over a valley of literal dead and dry bones. That sounds crazy, right? Because it is. Ezekiel obeys and he preaches over these dry dead bones. Then the spirit causes these bones to rattle and shake. They get skin on them and breath in them. Then they stand up alive. That's not because of the greatness of the preacher, Ezekiel. That's not because of the loveliness or worthiness or even activity of the bones. That's because of the power of the word of God and the spirit acting upon the bones and giving them rebirth or new life. Further, look at verse 8 back in John chapter 3. Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is is telling Nicodemus, being born again or of the Spirit, it's like the wind. You can't control it. You can't summon it. But its effects are noticeable. Think of it this way. Picture a sailboat. Got a picture of a sailboat up here. A sailboat moves because the wind is blowing, not the other way around. The wind doesn't blow because the sailboat's already moving, does it? The same is true with our wills. And that's what Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus here. He's saying, Brother, to be born again is to be acted upon by the Spirit of God. 
The same way those dry bones were in Ezekiel 37. Paul says it like this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See this. To be born again is to move from dead to alive, from flesh to spirit, from a child of wrath to a child of the living God. Dead bones, dead people, they don't make the first move. They don't make any move. They must be acted upon, and this is grace. This is regeneration. This is being born again. You don't initiate your birth or your rebirth. God is sovereign over both. Remember John chapter 1, verse 13. Those who are children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But we've also got to acknowledge that there's something mysterious about the new birth. Jesus says, again, it's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. We know that it's instantaneous, the new birth. But it's not repeated. It's moving from death to life. And that it's truly transforming. So, point one, to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Point two, to enter the kingdom, you must look upon Jesus lifted up. You must look upon Jesus lifted up. Look at verses 12 through 15. Jesus goes on to say, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man, referring to himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you, you've come here looking for signs. You're asking me about heavenly things, right? But I'm telling you about something that happens here on earth. Let's start, Nicodemus, with a passage that you certainly, of all people, know well from the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, says this. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So this is the, the people of God, Israel. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Look at what Jesus is saying here. In Numbers, that the people sinned against God, God sends judgment leading to death. God takes a representation of the curse and places it on a pole and tells the people to look upon it, which gives them life. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Every single one of us, like the people in Numbers, sin against a holy God. Every single one of us deserves the just wrath of God leading to death. And yet, in God's love, grace, and mercy, he provides a way of life. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So just like the curse of the serpent was placed on a pole for them to look at, Jesus becomes a curse for us by hanging on another type of pole, the cross. In the case of the Israelites, the remedy was look at the serpent and live, right? The solution wasn't do anything to earn God's favor. It was to look upon God's means of redemption and to trust in God's means of provision. It's no different for us. The solution to our wrath or sin problem is to look upon Jesus who was lifted up on the cross for us. He lived the perfect life that none of us are able to live. He died the death in our place that we all deserved. Belief in Jesus is eternal life. Look to him and live. Entering the kingdom of God involves being born again. And being born again is only possible because of the cross of Jesus. Third and finally, entrance into the kingdom of God is a result of God's love. Entrance into the kingdom of God is a result of God's love. So what did John, Jesus, Rock and Rollin' and I want you to see and believe. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. D.A. Carson says that as the new birth the acquisition of eternal life has been grounded in the lifting up of the Son. So also 
that lifting up, the climax of the Son's mission, is itself grounded in the love of God. So see this. The same God who must pour out his just wrath upon sin also loves us enough to provide a just payment for that sin. And the just payment for our sin was his only son, the son of man, Jesus. The intensity of the gift matches the intensity of God's love. And notice that it's not just God's love for the Jews. For God so loved the world. Jesus didn't die for people from one particular economic status. He didn't die for people from one particular race or nation. He died for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's good news. Why? That includes us. Entrance into the kingdom of God is a result of God's love. Further, it's not a result of our own goodness or works. Verses 16 and 18 make it clear that salvation and eternal life are dependent upon belief. While Paul's language of justification by faith isn't explicitly used here in John 3, that's exactly what's being said. C.S. Lewis once said that the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. That's spot on. We're given new birth, initiated by the Spirit, because of the love of God, by our belief or faith in Christ. I'll say that again. We're given new birth, initiated by the Spirit, because of the love of God, by our belief or faith in Christ. John even reiterates this truth by using the analogy of light again. Look at verses 19 through 21. It says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those who aren't judged are no more lovely and no more moral than those who are wicked. They merely have a different attitude towards the light. The lover of darkness avoids the light out of fear, shame, and hate, while the lover of light trusts Jesus and the truth. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as we heard earlier. 1 John 1, 8 through 9. We often use this for our confession of sin. It says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The lover of light isn't superior to the lover of darkness. He comes because of the love of the Father and the new birth of the Spirit and the lifting up of the Son. You must be born again. Let's pray.